Um, my name is Brian, one of the pastors, and uh, we're going to just jump into the teaching this morning. Uh, we've been in a series um, that we started sometime towards the end of last year in the book called First Corinthians. Uh, so if you have not been with us for any length of time, that's what we're doing. We're going to continue that right now. We're going to uh, jump into chapter 3. If you guys have a Bible, why don't you open up to chapter 3, 1 Corinthians. If you have no clue where that's at, it's literally right before 2 Corinthians. Isn't that good? No, that's a dumb one. Um, anyways, uh, yeah, check that out. Don't feel ashamed ever to use your table of contents. It's totally cool as well. Or to, uh, if you need a Bible, we have some ushers that would love to get your Bible as well. They're right there, so raise your hand. They'll get you a Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, go ahead and uh, keep this. It's our, our gift to you guys. Um, what I'd like to do before we jump in, I'm going to read the passage. In fact, um, I'm going to have you guys stand up again if that's cool. How about we all stand? We'll read the scripture as a way of just honoring uh, God's word. Um, I'll read it, and then we will pray, and then we'll jump into what God has to teach us here this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 says this, I, Paul, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, or another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely human? And this is God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. And we ask that you would help our hearts to be uh, open and willing to learn and grow, um, and to even be challenged and in other ways, even contradicted. God, we, we invite your Holy Spirit, to work and move in our midst to show us ultimately who you are, Jesus. And so we just invite you to do that work that only you alone could do, and we pray that you would um, glorify yourself and lead us to life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you all to grab a seat. Um, We'll start with a, kind of an obvious uh, statement, and then we'll just jump into this. Um, but do you know that God actually intends for you to grow? That salvation, when we talk about meeting Jesus or going to church or following, you know, being a Christian or being born again, however you want to think of it, um, we tend to think of it as like an event that happened in your life, and then everything kind of is living in a state of suspended animation to the point where you die. Um, and what I mean by that is... We have kind of this idea, I think, within the Western construct of Christianity that what it means to have interaction with God is, like I said, this experience where you pray a prayer, you have an emotional moment with God, you feel goose pimples, right? You have some sort of encounter with God, and then, then the point where you die. But every time in between that, you can just do whatever the heck you want. You can live any way you want. You can act any way you want. You can do whatever it is that you want. You are kind of the captain of your own ship. You figure things out on your own, by yourself. And oftentimes, I think what it has created is what I like to think of as a crisis in discipleship. We don't know what it truly means to follow Jesus. That this was this concept, this construct of Christianity, the way I just described it, it may be a caricature, but I think there is some truth to every caricature that is sort of predominant within the way that we tend to think about Jesus in our culture. What I would suggest is that frame of Christianity is completely foreign to the New Testament church. Completely foreign. It's not how God intended for us to really truly follow Jesus. What God intended was when we encountered the living God and 
trusted him, gave our lives to him, what happened was what Jesus describes as a rebirth. Your life begins to take a new shape. Your desires slowly begin to be formed and reformed and transformed and shaped from who you once were to who you are becoming. And we like to think of that as basically in a state of becoming holy or consecration. There's a, several different ways in which we can describe it. But the point of the matter is, is there is a movement towards Christ-likeness, or what we're going to describe in just a moment as one commentator and Bible scholar describes it as Christiformity. It's his kind of convergence of several different words, but the idea is that we are being conformed into the image of Christ, Christiformity, transformation into the image of Christ. So with that being said, is God wants us, so I'll go to the next slide, here, here we go, this is it, thoughts on some immaturity and growth, um, that God actually wants and intends for his children to grow. The second thing that we can think about is that maturity actually happens when we entrust ourselves to God by learning what is truest about God, ourselves, and others. This is how we grow. I mean, it's the most simplistic way that you can think of it is growth involves this process of, in some ways you can even add before that, unlearning false notions that you've had about God because we all, we all you know, bring them in. We all have baggage that we bring, and some of us as carry-ons. But the point of the matter is, is we have false notions that we bring uh, to our understanding and awareness of who God is. And some of those ideas need to be, like, trashed. They need to be reformed. They need to be completely gotten rid of. So it's this process of unlearning certain false information about God, then relearning who God is, and then learning who you are as a follower of God, and then learning who and where you belong within the larger context of God's family. And uh, the way that this happens is through what we would just describe as understanding the gospel. Understanding the gospel. It's as simple as that. Learning, growing, understanding the gospel. We'll get into some more practical ways in just a moment before we finish completely this morning. But this idea of learning the gospel, this is what Paul was doing in and throughout this entire letter. He was addressing some of the challenges or the complex issues that they faced, and there are many of them. But the way that he was going about this was not by pulling like power plays. Paul could have done that. He was, a, he was an apostle, which meant he was kind of a higher up leader in the church. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't throw down, you know, uh, dictation saying, here's what you need to do because this is who I am. That's not how Paul does this. Paul basically says, this is what I'm inviting you into, live into, because this is who you are. This is who you are. This is how, what God has done for you. So therefore, live. And when you live in a way that's inconsistent with that or incongruent with that lifestyle, you're, you're living in a way that's not living into your truest, deepest, most profound Identity. In other words, there is a duplicity about our lives uh, that, that Paul's inviting us into identifying and then reforming and changing as a result of that. So I want to make a really quick statement between good news and good advice, because good advice basically saying, here's what you need to do, follow these rules, follow this advice, this, this concept, these ideas, and then somehow your life will gradually get better. Now, this seems to be the problem that was happening within the Corinthian church. Now, again, just by way of review, the Corinthian church was a community of people that followed Jesus. They lived in the city of Corinth, right? Corinth was basically one of the most progressive, most um, uh, forward-thinking cities in the entire ancient known world. It was a center for commercialism. It was a center for... Um, uh, sports, so you had all these like Conor McGregor type people walking around, strutting their stuff. They were good looking. Uh, there was all sorts of money around there. As a result of that, there was a, a dark side underbelly to the reality of this. 
uh, sex was rampant, in, in immorality was completely rampant. Um, all of these, uh, you know, uh, uh, sex trafficking was a consistency. All of these things that were going on within the city of Corinth. Now, when people were getting saved or meeting Jesus, they were, for the most part, bringing those traits and habits into the church. And they were basically learning or learning to unlearn certain bad habits that were inconsistent or incongruent with the life of God and then learn new traits. Now, this, what we would describe as growth. They were growing in a state of maturity and holiness and becoming like God. Many of them, they were growing exceptionally slow. It's like God is in the driver's seat. He's got his, you know, foot on the pedal to go very fast, but they got their hand on the e-brake, and they're pulling and slowing the whole entire process down. And maybe that's the way some of you are right now. Like, you're slowing the process of what God is wanting to do in your life by literally yanking the e-brake and slowing the whole entire thing down. But here's, I want to make a really quick statement before we jump into this. There is a grave uh, distinction between good news and good advice. So let me give you an example. Let's say, for example, you are a student. Um, and here you are in a class, you're learning all this information, and it comes to the end of the quarter, and you got to take this really massive test. So the teacher walks up and down each aisle and says, here's what you all need to do. You need to study really hard, make sure you take a lot of notes, make sure you stay up till very, very, you know, wee hours of the morning, studying, training, drinking, um, drinking lots of, you know, caffeine, and um, just, you know, doing, doing all this rigorous stuff to your body, to your mind. Um, that's good advice. You understand? That's good advice. Totally good advice, because that's, that's how you learn. You cram it as much as you can. You learn and you grow. Good advice, right? So on the day of the test, you come in, and here you are. A teacher gives one more you know, bit of good advice. He says, okay, guys, uh, here's what you need to do. Let's say, for example, here you are taking the test, and you're utterly stressed. Uh, because you didn't sleep, because you are jacked up on so much caffeine, you are not well-rested, your mind is not in the proper place, the teacher comes walking up to you and he can tell that you're agitated, you're not thinking clearly, and he says to you, like, Yo, here's what you need to do, just take, a, take two minutes, meditate, calm your mind, think, whatever it is that you do, you know, um, center yourself or be mindful, whatever types of modern secular concepts and constructs that we have available. You know, he says, just do this, take a deep breath, go drink a bunch of water, just clear your senses and your mind so that you can then focus. This again, it's more good advice. Here you go. Now begin to take the test, and you're still not thinking clearly. You're still feeling a sense of stress, and you don't ace the test like you were hoping. So good advice can point you in the right direction. That's good advice. Good news is, let's say, for example, you take the good advice, and you get to the point of feeling the sense of anxiety and stress, Good news on that particular day, here you are, that student in the midst of the class, teacher recognizes you're having a tough time, you're agitated, you're aggravated, you're not able to think clearly. He comes walking up to you and he can tell and ask you, you know, is everything okay? You're like, my goodness, I can't think clearly. All sorts of trauma and difficulties and hardships I'm facing right now in my life. I can't, I, if, I, if I, you know, F this test and, um, you know, get an F on this test, not... You get the idea. If I, that didn't come out the way I intended. But you get the idea. If I don't do good on this test, then, then I, I'm out of school. This is not good. Again, advice says, just calm yourself. Do the very best you can. That's not going to help you. But let's say, for example, the teacher says, here's what I'm going to do. Why don't you scoot over a little bit? He sits down next to you, takes out his pencil, pen, whatever, and begins to give you all the answers to the test. Now, you might look at that and be like, well, that's not fair. Like... And he says, no, I'm, I'm going to give you the answers that you do not have, but I'm going to do it for you. 
This, to some degree, again, every analogy breaks down. This is what the gospel is. God comes into this world and does something for us that we cannot do on our own for ourselves. He completely transplants us from a status of brokenness and destruction into a place of wholeness. Why? Because of what we've done? No, because of what he's done. That's, that's good news. It's a distinction between good news, good advice. Good advice does not save you. It only puts you in a place of having to work extra hard for yourself to determine your own outcome. Good news is an announcement of something that God did for you on your behalf. And this is exactly what Paul's doing to these people. He's saying, God has done something for you. Stop trying to keep doing something for yourself to progress your maturity. It's not working. Just pause and stop and think and refocus upon the good news that God has announced. So lastly, that the Corinthians had an exaggerated view of their growth and maturity, which Paul then gently exposes and then corrects. So um, this is just an an obvious state of life. There's a tendency for us to over-exaggerate our level of maturity. Like There's a tendency for us to think, I'm way more mature as a follower of Jesus than I really am. And especially if you're younger, you're newer as a follower of Jesus, there's a tendency to think that you're far more advanced. I mean, I remember as a young Christian, I gave my life to Jesus when I was around 16 years old, got saved around the time. And by the time I was like 19, I had read a bunch of books. I had listened to a bunch of, they had these things called cassette tapes. If you have no idea what they are, just look them up on the internet. I listened to like, I don't know, hundreds of these cassette tapes. I felt like I had learned a thing or two, and I felt way more uh, advanced in my spiritual maturity than I really was. And I was just a bonehead. I was argumentative. I was constantly wanting to fight with people. I was constantly wanting to point out where they were wrong and how they were failing, how they weren't doing what God expects them to do. I was very, very critical, very, very judgmental, very, very uh, divisive. In other words, I had an overinflated perspective of my spiritual advancement. I was still just a child. And this is what Paul is basically saying to these guys, is that you think that you are way more advanced than what you really are, you're, you're not. You're not. There's some serious flaws in your discipleship to Jesus that need to be exposed and then be put in the concept of the gospel, the good news, and then you reposition yourself in light of that. And God will begin to do the rest. So with that being said, I'm going to read a real quick quote by a scholar theologian by the name of Stephen Um. He says this, The Corinthians had been striving to achieve spiritual growth, to latch onto some teaching or teacher that would make them mature. Paul claims that they had made no progress. They are still acting according to the principles of broader Corinthian culture. This is not good. Not good. So as followers of Jesus in the city of Corinth, which was horribly decadent, full of decay, full of brokenness, they were bringing that decadence, decay, brokenness, into their own discipleship with Jesus. Rather than learning to live as followers of Jesus in the city of Corinth, they were allowing the city of Corinth to influence and shape them rather than the Holy Spirit that had reformed them. And it's always a danger for us, guys. Always the danger for you and I. That there are influences, there are things that are constantly uh, like, a, like currents pulling us, pushing us, drawing us to be shaped by its influence. And what it means to be a follower of Jesus is first and foremost is to ask the bigger question, what, what has God done for me? Good news. And, and how has God positioned me or postured me within the construct of what he's done for me? And how am I responding to that right now? That, that's, we would call that worship. That's what worship is. Worship is a response to God 
God's initiation. So um, next slide. I want to basically jump in and take a look at uh, several different things that are most truest about us that Paul basically just tells us these things. I'll go through each one of them one by one through the passage that we had just read. But three main things that I think Paul wants us to understand that are most truest about us. And there's also other things as well in addition to this, but this is what we're the passage that we're looking at. Number one, that first of all, we are, we are siblings. This is a really important word choice that Paul uses, the word siblings. It's a word of Delphos. It's used some 127 times throughout Paul's letters, around 317 times in the entire New Testament. It's a very, very significant word choice that Paul uses, Paul selects. Paul would have been familiar with the guy by the name of Plutarch. Uh, he had written a very important book in the early first century called On Brotherly Love. And so within even the uh, larger, broader culture, there was this idea of the importance of uh, family-type relationships, what we would call siblingship. Um, and yet what Paul is doing is he's borrowing language like that, and he's elaborating on it. He's basically saying this is the type of relationship that God has begun with you and I, that we are brought into this relationship with God and to live as siblings. This is the term that's ultimately used for the whole congregation of people who follow Jesus. Again, I'm going to read a quote from Scott McKnight. He says this. Next slide. He says, pastors nurture congregants into siblings. For pastors to nurture friendships into siblingships in the direction of Christiformia. Again, so there's a word. So I don't, siblingships and Christiformia are not, not words, just in case you're wondering. Like, I never read that one before. Like, right, because you're, you're not. They're not real words, but he makes them up. So he's a, he's a pastor, scholar. We, we have a tendency to do these types of things. So, so siblingships. So his point of the matter is this is what God's doing. And good pastors, they are training people to see themselves in the context of not just simply one in the crowd. You're not just a number. You're not just somebody who's occupying a seat. If you are a follower of Jesus, one of the most truest things about you is you have a family. Why is this so important? This is so essential, especially in our culture and our age in, in which we live in today. Because there's something about family that, that, that resonates deeply within our very core and our being. Um, it's this idea, it's the place where you are most known and most loved, or at least it should be. In other words, another way to think of it, it's, it's home. We have this deep, deep longing and anxiety, I would even add, for being brought home. I would even argue that this is kind of how we orient our lives. We long to have some place of belonging. Um, I would even argue this is kind of what social media is all about. It's a way of trying to figure out within the pecking order of everybody who's got really white, pearly teeth and really blonde, beautiful hair and really strong, you know, six-pack abs. And where do I fit within that pecking order? And if you don't have that, you look at that and you realize, I don't fit in. I'm not that good looking. I'm not that popular. I don't have that many followers who follow me. So therefore, I am worthless. I do not belong. Do you realize how anxiety creating that construct is? And yet that's the air we breathe. That's the world we live in. But the gospel actually offers an entirely different perspective that says, you don't need to play that game. It's just a game. It doesn't work. And it's always rigged in favor of the most beautiful, the strongest, most wealthy, most powerful, most alpha female slash male. It's always rigged in that direction. And if you don't fit or measure up into that, then you are constantly feeling lost, meaningless, and alone. And here's this message that Paul says. Siblings, brethren, you belong. You have a place. You've been brought into a family. 
you are loved. So what he goes on to say in this story, or in this book, Scott McKnight, he goes on to say, in the direction of Christian form. So the whole aim of siblingship is not just to have a place of belong, but it's ultimately in that place of belonging, you become somebody. You become something. You begin to take upon yourself the, the characteristic traits of dad. And what he describes that as is this process where he says Christiformity, formation into the life of Christ. He says the following themes are important. Sibling relationships are marked by, number one, love for all siblings. It's marked by this. John in the New Testament, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, uh, describes that, hey, you can say you love God, who's invisible, but if you say, I hate my brother, I hate my pastor, I hate my past you know, Christian leader that, you know, Bum me out, hurt me. And, and those may be real pains that you bear. But if that has consistent residence within your heart, what John actually says is that you, you don't, it's, it's a failure to really understand the gospel and what this whole new world is that we've been brought into. We're siblings. And yeah, you may have a sibling that completely failed you, dropped the ball, hurt you, wounded you. But how do siblings in you know, families actually work through these types of things? Forget Legends of the Fall. But you get the idea. How do families work through things, especially if they're young? You typically have a mom or dad come in and play, you know, um, umpire and just like, here's what you got to do. Say I'm sorry. Figure it out. Work through it. Give each other a hug. That's what we used to do when my kids were young. It's just like when they would get mad at each other, one would whack the other or take something from the other person. Uh, we would sit them down and just be like, look, you, you guys are siblings. You're stupars. Stupars don't act like that. Like, we, we don't bite each other's cheek when we're mad. Like, we just don't do that. We don't pinch. We don't yell at the top of our lungs. We don't scream at each other. That's, just, that's not who we are. It's not. Now, when you act that way, you're acting in a way that's not consistent with your nature of who you are. You're a stupor. It's not what we do. And it's what Paul is basically saying, is that first and foremost, you're brethren. You have a place. Then he goes on to say, secondly, that it also involves growth in Christiformity. Thirdly, knowing that sibling relations begin ultimately with Jesus. In fact, the New Testament describes Jesus. As, as our brother. So the whole framework of sibling, siblingship, is built in, baked into the very nature of the New Testament announcement that Jesus has come to completely do something brand new, what we would call the gospel. So secondly, I want to read one other final uh, quote by Scott McVeck, which I don't have up there, so just listen. It says this, that the churches transcended into social gatherings and they were not seminaries or colleagues designed for instruction alone. Rather, these were siblings who shared life with one another and who worshiped the same God made known to them in Jesus the Messiah. So what Paul is basically saying, or what Scott McKnight is saying about Paul, is that the churches that Paul created and the other New Testament people that kind of created these little communities, they, the, the main point of them were not just social gatherings. The main point of them were not just simply informational deposit centers. You know, come to our gathering, we're going to give you information. It does involve information, but that's not the main primary goal. The main primary goal is that we are a community. So I want you to pause and think about that. I'm not sure how you think about Calvary Slow or your expectations or your experiences here on a Sunday morning or throughout the week in small gatherings that we have throughout the city uh, called community groups. I'm not sure how you think about these things. Um, again, I think... If I had to guess, there's a tendency or at least a very, very strong cultural current that's baked into our society and our nature as Americans of being consumeristic. Meaning, we look at a gathering as really as an end in and of itself to give me something 
of value and benefit. Maybe to hear a good sermon or to really listen to music that's beneficial to me, that makes me feel good, or have a message that makes me feel wonderful when I walk away instead of feeling depressed because I'm constantly watching the news and it's making me depressed. Anyhow, on my knees, you know, however we think about it, my tendency to, would be to think or suspect that most of us approach gatherings merely on the basis of consuming something from it for us. Um, it's a different way to think about it than the New Testament, which is it's first and foremost a gathering of siblings around the person of Jesus to let him shape us and to make us into the persons, the people that he is wanting to glorify himself through. And it's in that context that we find true joy. Uh, I'll even add, we also find incredible pain. Let's be straight up. People will hurt you. They'll let you down. They'll say things to you that they didn't intend on saying, and they will totally hurt you. I was talking with a friend of mine uh, a couple of years ago, she's a gal, she's in her mid-30s, she's never been married, never had, you never even had a boyfriend, and she's doing amazing things for Jesus in the world. And she's, she's, she was telling me that it's very common for her to go into gatherings, because she'll speak at a lot of different churches and whatnot, that people, there's always inevitably going to be someone that's going to come up, and they're going to be like, hey, the Lord told me that you're going to get married to so-and-so. And she was telling me this one experience one time where this guy came up to her. He'd known her for a really long time, kind of older dude. And he's like, I got a word from the Lord for you. And she basically is like, oh, boy, what's this going to be? And then he's like, he proceeded to say, like, God told me that you're going to marry this person. And in her mind, she's like, I'm so tired of people trying to, like, fix me. And I'm like, does it happen often? She goes, it happens all the time. People always try to, like, set me up and fix me because they see my singleness as, as a problem that needs to be reoriented, readjusted, and fixed as opposed to just recognizing it's a gift from Jesus to serve him. Like, how does it make you feel? She goes, it's frustrating, but they're people, and I love the people, and I realize that we're all in a state of process and growth and development and maturing in holiness and maturing in Christ-likeness, and that's where that guy's at. So I'm able to kind of look past it rather than being offended and just keep serving the church as I've been doing for many, many years. And I'm like, my goodness, like, that, that is the definition of being mature. Like, learning how to see people in this proper perspective, as siblings do. All right, next one, I'm going to move on to the very second thing, which is, number one, we are siblings. Number two, Paul uses this phrase that we are spiritual. i got to unpack this a little bit because I think there are some myths in our culture around the concept of spiritual, spirituality. I'll get to that in a second. But let, let me read the passage. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1, he says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, which is another way of basically Paul saying, I wanted to address you as such. I really wanted to address you as people that were more advanced, more in tune, more in step with the heart of God, but, but I couldn't because your heart, your mind, your actions, your proclivities, your activities were all out of sync with the way that God is. And so we got we to deal with some of these things first. That's what Paul is basically saying. Um, and this sort of kind of goes back or dovetails into what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you were to go back and look at verse 16 of chapter 2, go backwards. He says, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? So he's a quoting directly from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. Um, and he says, but we have the mind of Christ. Um, Isaiah 40, that what, now the way Paul is writing, he's a master teacher, communicator, writer. He was a Torah expert. And so Paul was very familiar with the passages out of Isaiah chapter 40. Um, he knew that Isaiah chapter 40 was this passage that referenced the Messiah, the king that would come. And who is the Messiah? Well, ultimately, the king and the Messiah would have full harmony with Adonai, with Yahweh, with God. He would fully know the mind of God. And here's what Paul is saying, is that this Messiah has come. And guess what? 
you are in Messiah, which means the mind of God is in you. Do you get that? This should blow your mind. Like, if you fully grasp this, it should radically blow your mind. Because I would suggest that our minds, our hearts, our desires are filled with so many other things, and there's so many other forces in this world right now that are shaping and tantalizing our desires. But Paul, just pause for a moment and think about this. That the very, very beautiful mind that governs the entire universe, the cosmos, if you're in Jesus, this mind of God is shared with you which means we have the capacity to walk in a way that's different than the ways that we oftentimes have been walking in. The mind of God has been revealed to Jesus, and Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ, which means Christ had the mind of God, which means there's this loop which we've been brought into, this circle, this family, this friendship, this relationship. So we've got to tackle this concept of spiritual or spirituality, because it's very prominent within our culture. In fact, many of us, if I were to go around the room right now and ask, what do you think of when you think of the word spiritual? Most of our, I think, or at least maybe some, many of our, I think, ideas would take shape of something like this. Disembodied, immaterial, something that's invisible, someone that, or maybe even in a very personalized type sense, I've had an incredible spiritual experience. So we use this language oftentimes to mean something that's actually very different than what the Bible actually uses. So if anything, it's helpful to acknowledge the fact that some of the words that we use uh, to articulate, to describe our experience with God or our understanding of the world um, is actually more Plutonic in its shape, meaning it's more in alignment with Pluto. Um, Plato, not Pluto. Pluto's a planet. Uh, and, and I think a dog in Disney films. But um, uh, uh, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and these ideas of something that is not Jesus. But the word spiritual, what does it actually mean then? Um, so in scripture, the word spiritual, I think the way that Paul uses this is deeply connected with the very first opening line of the Bible itself, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the deep, making something come to life or animated bringing life into that very thing, that very substance. This is the idea that's basically carried throughout the entire Old Testament, that the prophets come in the scene, constantly dealing with the uh, insubordination and the sinfulness and the activities of people that, the people of God, uh, the nation of Israel, wandering, running away from God. And he envisions, many of the prophets envisioned a time when the Spirit of God will actually take up residency within the hearts of humanity. Okay? So you follow the storyline. You get to the book of uh, the Gospels and the book of Acts in particular. And what happens is you hear these writers basically say, what's happening right now is uh, people's lives are being taken residency by the Holy Spirit, which means God is bringing new creation to bear within human beings that are constantly going off-road, left, right, veering from center into places of death, darkness, brokenness, ruin, chaos, and bringing chaos in the lives of other people. That the, God's solution is not more rules, not more laws, not better advice. Remember, we talked about this. But good news, that God says, I will do something for them that they couldn't do for themselves. What does he do? His solution is to give everyone that trusts in him a new heart with new desires, new longings. So that means that the way Paul would describe this is what it means to walk in the Spirit. One Bible translator uh, describes it this way, to walk in step with the Spirit of God. 
Another way you can think of it is to walk in agreement with God, with whatever God is saying, saying, I want to align my heart, my ways, my actions, my activities with the heart and the mind and the desires of God. What does it mean to not walk in step with the Holy Spirit? Well, it means that there are these default settings in who you are that will just kick in. Uh, let me put it this way. Um, to walk in the flesh, all you simply got to do is open your eyes in the morning and just do whatever it is that you normally do, right? You just got to open your mouth, and the very first words that come out of your mouth are just going to probably be self-centered or hurtful or, you know, with, with a barb or a sharp edge. Uh, you're going to cause offense to other people. In other words, all you have to do to walk in the flesh if you're a follower of Jesus is do nothing. Just, it's the default mode. It's what we know most intimately as human beings, by the way, that are broken and far from God. But the good news is that God has come to do something about that distance and that brokenness and to bring life, and this is what he's saying. Is that Secondly, we see this idea that we are spiritual, being animated by God, walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And again, Paul's writing to, again, I want to be clear on this, as to siblings, people that have been brought in this relationship of trusting Jesus, which means if you're somebody here this morning and maybe you are just kind of in a place of checking things out, trying to make sense of God, maybe you've never really fully devoted your life to Jesus, what does that mean about you? Well, what it, basically the Bible describes is that our hearts are still kind of on a trajectory that have turned away from God. We are still really at the end of the day trying to make sense of our own lives through our own lenses and through our own power and through our own empowerment, which means at some point when the juice runs out, we will find ourselves in a state of brokenness, death. And this is what the difference uh, that Paul is saying is that those who trust Jesus have been brought into this new alignment of a relationship with God. Those who have not trusted Jesus are still trusting in something that's not God. It could be self, it could be self-empowerment, it could be any other form or idea or facet which is not in alignment with the heart of God. So the third thing I want to take a look at, number one, we saw that the truest thing about us is that we are siblings. Secondly, we see that we are spiritual. Thirdly, we see that we are actually in process. This becomes really clear in verse 3 where Paul goes on to say three different statements about kind of like a, a cascading or build up to where he is basically saying that these people, even though they have been brought into this relationship with Jesus, the way that their life is practically being lived. So maybe some of you heard the distinction between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. What that means is orthodoxy is what you believe, um, the idea of what you hold to, the stories you believe that are about God, about yourself, but then orthodoxy, which is what you do, or sorry, orthopraxy, the practices that you actually live out or that you embody. They're, they're actually in alignment. So what you do is ultimately going to be shaped by what you believe. So this is why it's really important for you to understand what you believe actually matters. This is why if you have a, of a bad God narrative, the way I describe it, meaning you think of God as being the angry landlord sitting upstairs somewhere in your apartment complex, that any time you rock the boat or you come in late at night or you kind of agitate the whole system, this God is so mad at you. You live in this constant state of feeling like God is always deeply, deeply disturbed with me. If I were to ask you, describe the intimacy and the relationship that you have with this God, um, it's almost a laughable matter because you, you know there's no relationship. Like, you don't have a relationship with that guy other than wanting to kill him. That's exactly what Luther described, is that he came to this state in life where he realized this God that he felt was so angry and mad at him throughout his entire life. There's this image of him throwing this ink bottle at the devil. 
But in reality, he comes to find out later that really his anger was not at the devil. It was at God. But it was a misperception of God. It was a bad God narrative that he had inherited that ultimately in order for him to progress in his faith and understanding, he needed to get rid of that God narrative and replace it with a brand new one. And this is what we begin to see in the last little section here, that we are ultimately in process. If you want to think of it this way, that we may ultimately be influenced by the fleshly urges that you and I have, more so than by the Spirit of God. And this is the challenge that we have to face. Listen to how Paul is going to describe this. For you are still in the flesh, verse 3, uh, for while, you, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not in the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Verse 4, he says, for when one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Paulus, are you not merely human? What Paul's suggesting, and let me say this, if you have different translations than what I'm reading out of, which is the ESV, you'll notice that there are variations in that translation. So if you have NIV, if you have uh, you know, New King James or King James or whatever, every one of them is going to have some variation. The reason for that is because the Greek is actually very difficult to translate into a very direct, you know, uh, verbose type of a way. And so what that does, it creates challenges for those that do this you know, hard work of trying to make sense of it. But what most scholars will agree upon is that what's actually happening here is that Paul's saying that even though that you have been brought into this new relationship with Jesus, you're still acting in such a way that's in alignment with these urges of your flesh. They're the things that govern you still. Those are the things that still have dominance and control over you. When you feel them, they just are the things that overwhelmingly take control over you. And what Paul is saying is you're not living in right relationship to the truest nature of who you really are. So um, Scott McKnight puts it this way, and I want to finish with a couple of thoughts on this. Scott McKnight says this. Paul is calling all Christians into Christiformity. Um, Inherent in such Christiformity is putting sin and the flesh to death and rising to a new life of love and holiness, we can say that the entire mission of Paul was one of moral transformation of sinners into saints, of those who are far from God into those who are becoming Christ-like. Paul's mission is to bring those people that were really far from God into a place. Now, again, here's a big question. How does Paul do that? Through guilt, through shame, through laws, through good advice? Totally not. This is why it's so important, because what religion typically does, religion says, you're a bunch of mess-ups, your life is horrible, everything's out of control, you're just living in a perennial state of chaos, and I'm here as the guru to tell you what to do to make your life better, right? And you can pay me by way of Venmo, right? Um, And I offer a succession of good advice for you to follow, and some of you might have, to some degree, good success by the good advice that I give you. Others of you are not going to feel that. You're going to feel this deep sense of guilt and shame because you're like, I can't do this. I'm not as good as they are. There's other people that are succeeding. Um, I must be a failure. So what good advice can only do, it can either lead you on this constant state of feeling deeply full of despair because you constantly fail. Or worse, feel extremely prideful and arrogant. Because you constantly think you're progressing, but you're really not. So with that being said, I want to finish with some final thoughts. Uh, I want to read a real quick quote by a guy named uh, N.T. Wright. He says this, Paul uses words which are difficult to translate, like I had already alluded to, but which mean more or less living 
on the basis of your created and corruptible nature alone, verse 1, and living as people determined to make that created and corruptible nature alone your guide and your rule. Just listen to that last little phrase again. Living as people determined to make that created and corruptible nature alone your guide and rule. So the question that you've got to ask yourself, what is my guide and rule for life? Is it, you know, my, what I feel? Is it my heart? You know, there's this real strong idea in today's world that didn't just come out of nowhere. It's actually been shaped over the past, like, 30, 40 years. Um, there's this uh, series of videos that you can watch. I think it's called The Age of Self, if I'm not mistaken, on YouTube. Highly recommend it. In the third video, they begin to talk about how what psychologists, modern psychologists, that were basically overturning everything Freudian. I don't know if you knew this or not, but it was a major earth shake within the world of psychology. And they're basically saying what Freud taught was totally wrong as a new wave of psychologists. What we're saying that really what you need to do by way of advance is self-actualize. Self-actualize. You need that little inner policeman that's telling you, don't do this, don't do that. What you need to do is kill the policeman and live according to whatever dictates or desires your heart has. What the Bible says is that that's actually a new form of enslavement because what our heart is constantly telling us at best is always shaping, shifting, longing for something new. And I'll, I'll prove this to you, and I've used this example before. If you were to go back like 15 years ago, five years ago, whatever, maybe even last year, and look at photos of yourself and look at what you were wearing. You're like, oh, my gosh, my hair looks horrible. My, my clothing is just unrepulsive. How in the world did I do that, right? Sometimes Facebook, you know, memories come up, and, you know, I know some of you aren't even on Facebook anymore, but you get the idea. And these memories come up, you're like, oh, my gosh, that was seven years ago. I can't believe I was wearing that. What was going on right there? I'll tell you what was going on. Seven years ago, you thought that actually looked kind of cool. Um, seven years later, modern day, you're looking at it, you're like, it's ridiculous. What was I thinking? What you were thinking is what you felt back then was what looked cool. Our desires are constantly changing and reshaping and shifting. And what Paul is saying is that the Corinthian people, they were living as people that were determined to make that created and corruptible nature alone the guide and rule instead of the Holy Spirit of God. So I want to finish with some simple thoughts to just consider, um, practical ways, how to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. And I'll wrap it up with this. Number one, there's three practical things that you can think of. Number one, uh, be quick to practice repentance. Be quick to practice repentance. Um, this takes humility, by the way. It takes a heart that, in essence, says, I don't have all the answers. I haven't got it all figured out. My discipleship of Jesus is not exactly what it could be or should be. And if there's areas in my life that are incongruent with God or inconsistent with the heart of God or out of step with the Spirit of God, I want to be quick to realign. That's what repentance is. I don't, I don't know what type of church background you grew up in, but there are some contexts where repentance is like this dirty word. Repent. You're going to go to hell. And it's kind of used as a, as, a, as a weapon. It's weaponized Bible. It's really bad. Don't ever do that. Don't ever be part of that. If you're in a church that weaponizes the Bible, run and go find a better church. The point of the matter is the word repentance is one of the most hope-filled, most amazing words in the entire Bible. That's basically just saying turn from those false notions about God, bad stories, and turn to the living God that gives you life. It's the word repent, to turn. So practice repentance. Practice repentance. Secondly, so it's, it involves this process of identifying, identifying the false lifestyle that's out of step with the Holy Spirit and God and his practices and the way of Jesus, and then realigning our lives with that. Secondly, um, have a plan for discipleship. 
So let me ask you this. If you look at your life right now and you're like, man, maybe I'm not as mature as I thought I was. Maybe I'm not, you know, overcome this, like, this anger streak that I thought I had overcome it. My, my question to you is, is, what's your game plan? Do you have a plan to overcome that? Do you have a plan to become a different person that represents the life of Jesus. And another question would be along those lines is, is how are you implementing a plan and a process to begin to tackle that, to become like Jesus? What does that plan look like? So many of us, we don't really have a plan in place. Um, some uh, Bible teachers and people that have followed Jesus for many, many years, they would describe this as a rule of life. It's a, it's a regular rule of life. Don't think rule in terms of negative connotation or a bad thing. It's a rule of life that basically says, here's how I'm going to um, train myself to be truly devoted to Jesus. Uh, it could involve you know, daily rhythms of waking up in the morning and spending some time with Jesus to pray. It could involve a rhythm of just saying, the moment I open my eyes, I'm not going to grab my cell phone. I, I want to tell you something real quick. This is a, this is a freebie, right? It's a freebie. Um, you, do you know that if by you know, implementing this non-practice, which is kind of what it is, it's, it's a way of stepping back, by not grabbing your phone the first thing in the morning and looking at one of three things that we typically always do, which is the news, social media, or our email. News, it's, it's a way of saying, I want to be informed about what's happening in the world. I want to know who, like, won the fight last night. Um, you can think about social media. What's the whole idea behind social media? It's a way of, like, figuring out where do I fit within the pecking order of life and humanity and how many people like my photo and how many people like my comment or whatever. And then finally, you think about the idea of, of uh, email. It, that's a way of basically saying, I can do it. I have power. I'm able. I'm capable. I can accomplish X, Y, and Z. So at the end of the day, that rhythm, that daily practice of rhythm, first thing in the morning, perhaps, is the very thing that's creating fear, anxiety, anger, a constant feeling of insufficiency. We're doing this ourselves, by the way, all because we grab for this device before we got on our face before our God. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just saying, what would it look like if we had a rule of life, a practice that involved not going to these things that may be helpful to some degree, but in reality might be shaping us to be the type of person that's not like Jesus. So have a plan of discipleship. Thirdly, invite mature believers or a mature believer into your life to evaluate and to coach you. Uh, we just call this discipleship. Um, Paul writes a lot about this. He says, older women, you know, invest your lives into younger women and older men, invest your lives into younger men. The whole idea behind this is that we, we need people to see into our lives and to speak into our lives. And again, we, we live in this weird world in which on the one hand, we long for a point of connection, but on the other hand, we want to be in control of that. Right? It's one of the reasons why we have this deep, deep fear of commitment because it's like, you know, people invite you, hey, come to this Bible study or come to this thing or come to this event. It's like, okay. And in the back of your mind, you're like, if there's not one of other 16 other things that might be better than that. So we, we kind of give this sort of half-hearted like devotion. But in reality, we just want to be con- in control of our schedule and in control of our lives. And we run oftentimes from real deep intimacy. I would suggest to you that when we run from deep relational intimacy with other people, we're actually prolonging our immaturity. We're just prolonging it. We're remaining in a state of immaturity that God wants to grow us up out of that so that we can become people that are like Jesus. So last 
thing is I want to end with some thoughts. In fact, I'll just have the worship team come on up and we'll wrap it up with this thought. So if God has done all this effort in Jesus to bring you close, because that's what siblingship is, then why is it that we oftentimes distance ourselves from him or run from him or avoid this intimacy with him? If God has clothed you with newness and righteousness, then why do we oftentimes put on our old, soiled clothing again and live as if we've never really really been truly changed? Um, And then finally, if God has adopted you as sons and daughters, then why do we oftentimes live as if everything is dependent upon us? Another word for that is why do we live as if we're orphans? An invitation for us is to live differently in life of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've maybe never given your life to Jesus, my hope and invitation to you would be to know that he's simply as close to you as a prayer, just speaking his name. Those, the Bible says that those that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The invitation for you, if you've never encountered this God that loves you, that has given himself for you, that offers not good advice but good news to you to change you, is that you can trust this God today, right now, to give your heart to him. So I'm going to invite us as we respond. Let's all stand. And as we come to the table, and as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, that we would be reminded of the relationship that we have with this God. That God, removed, that God took us from a place of obscurity and brought us into a place of proximity. Obscurity to proximity. We're close. We're near this God who loves us. And what that is it reorients the sum total of our lives. And then that begins to reshape bigger questions in our lives in terms of how do I act? How do I treat those that have hurt me or wounded me? How do I treat my enemy? How do I treat my spouse that drives me crazy? How do I respond to my kids when I'm tired at the end of my rope? And they're just constantly doing what kids do, which is just like focused, the world's focused upon themselves. And yet, how do we respond? The answers to those are not always just cut and dry and simple, but we are invited not necessarily to just get answers, but to step into relationship with this God that loves us and gave himself for us, to be like him. So I don't know where you're at or how you even think about all this, but my invitation for you is that if you are a follower of Jesus, take seriously this discipleship process. It doesn't just happen. It happens by way of saying yes to God daily, reorienting our lives to the one who loves us and reoriented himself to us, because that's exactly what Christmas is all about. God, the invisible one, stepping into our world. That's a reposturing, repositioning of who he is so that we who are made of the dirt can be made alive, given his Holy Spirit, given the mind of Christ. It's an incredible gift. So let's respond. Let's pray. If you're here and you have any need at all that you need prayer for this morning, I want to invite you to be prayed for. There's some people over off by the cross, as we normally do on the Sunday morning, to be uh, there to pray for you as we partake of the communion. Let's remind ourselves of the depth of God's love, and let's sing. Let's sing with all of our hearts. Jesus, thank you for your great love, and we devote our energy even now and our praise and our worship to you, the one who loves us, gave himself for us.